Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey guys, this is Ross Golan from And The Writer Is. If you're a songwriter or music industry professional, or if you're working to become one, this episode is required listening. Our guest, whose episode was previously featured in season two, is unlike any other in that he's not a songwriter, yet works tirelessly on behalf of all songwriters. His work has made an invaluable impact on furthering the progression of the Music Modernization Act, which is new legislation that aims to improve rights for songwriters, artists, and creatives in the digital era. We are sharing key points from his episode to help inform you on the history of music copyrights, our modern day industry, and the current strides to reform and regulate copyright law. He's the one leading the charge in Washington. He explains how we've been paid for the past 110 years. 110 years. And the writer is David Israel. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This week, we have a special guest. He is the man who fights for all you songwriters. He has been the president of the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, for over 10 years. He's the one who leads our efforts in copyright reform and songwriter equality in the streaming era. In other words, he's not just metaphorically David against Goliath. He's literally David. And he's battling behemoth companies and lobbyists who don't want to pay for your music, for your intellectual property, and for your work. As a human, he's on the board of the Songwriter Hall of Fame and the Special Olympics in D.C. And the best friend of writers is poker enthusiast extraordinaire, David Israelite. Thank you. It's quite an introduction. You know, what you're doing in D.C. is hard to explain to... You know, the the average even songwriter or professional songwriter. I think what's so shocking because we sell air for a living is how do you find value in intellectual property? Like why is a song worth something? What the history is? And I think it's probably best for you to give some sort of history from 1909, Irving Berlin, Tin Pan Alley. How is it that songwriters started getting paid. Sure. And I, I should tell you, I, I used to be a lawyer. I only practiced for a few years and, and quickly decided that wasn't my right career path. But it was during my time when I was working at the Justice Department, working for the Attorney General. And this was during the period when the theft of music was really the predominant issue in the music industry, is that people were stealing music, that a lot of artists and songwriters weren't making a, a living anymore. And I asked the attorney general if he would create a task force on intellectual property to really start to look at the issues of what the government could do to help people protect 
their intellectual property, but it was driven by music at the time. Who introduced you to that concept? I mean, how are you, being in D.C. and not being a songwriter, why did you find a, a sort of a personal affiliation to this? I think the inspiration came from, from two things. Number one, um, one of my close personal friends was running the trade association known as the Recording Industry Association of America, the RAAA. And I was watching what he was dealing with in his job in trying to protect copyrights against theft. And secondly, I think it was my own personal love of music that, that made me pay attention to what was going on. And I felt like I was in a position to, to potentially try to help um, from the position of the Justice Department. And so with the Attorney General's blessing, he created this task force. And we spent a couple of years looking at these issues, and that's really what got me into the whole space of copyright. I wasn't a copyright attorney. I had no background in it other than my very short music career. And so I started to learn quite a bit more about it. And it's a great question about the history because the story of how we got to where we are really is important. If you're a songwriter today you probably look at the world that you live in and it makes not a lot of sense why things are the way they are. And the history of how we got here is instructive. And so this story of a modern songwriter's problems starts basically in 1909. And at that time, the United States Congress thought that music publishers had a monopoly on player piano roles that there was too much concentration of the industry in too few hands and that the government needed to do something about it. And so in 1909, Congress passed a law that said to music publishers and composers that you must license your copyright and we at the federal government will set the price. And they decided in 1909 that that price would be two cents. So if you wrote a song and it was put on a player piano roll, you would be paid two cents for every time one of those roles was sold. And most importantly, you didn't have any choice as to whether or not people got to use it. It was a compulsory license. It was taken from you whether you wanted it to be taken or not. And that is how the law treated songwriters' copyrights from 1909 until 1976. And that two-cent rate stayed the same. So someone who bought an album in 1975, that songwriter got the same two cents as that songwriter from 1909 that made a song that was in a player piano role. And finally, in 1976, Congress decided not that we should free the songwriters to go into a free market like other property owners are to sell their property, but rather we should adjust the price. And from 1976 until today, there have been a series of different steps taken about how the prices get set. And so if you were to tell the average person today that if they were to listen to interactive streaming on Apple or Spotify or Pandora or Amazon or Google, that the price that a songwriter gets is set by three judges who sit in Washington, D.C., and every five years they conduct a trial to determine the price, the average person would look at you like, that is crazy. And they're right, it is crazy. But it all comes from an analysis in 1909 about the market concentration of how much music publishers had in player piano roles. And this type of income for a songwriter, what we call a mechanical reproduction, it used to be just a sale of a vinyl album or a CD or a download even. But today is mostly 
the streaming services that, that allow you to choose what you want to play whenever you want. There's a similar story when it comes to the rights of a songwriter when their music is played publicly, a public performance right. That right, um, so for example, your music is played on the radio or played in a public venue like a bar or a restaurant or a hotel. That right has never been regulated by Congress. It's a free market right, and a songwriter should be in the position to decide how much they want to charge for someone to publicly perform their song, their copyright. But the story of the history then jumps to 1941, when at that time there were two companies primarily that were engaged in the business of licensing songwriters' rights and collecting money for public performance. Those companies are ASCAP and BMI. And in 1941, Congress decided, I'm sorry, the Justice Department decided that there was too much market concentration in ASCAP and BMI, and there was a fledgling broadcast industry that was developing in the United States, and the Justice Department wanted to protect the broadcast industry against the monopoly power of these two companies, ASCAP and BMI. And so they put what's known as a consent decree on them, which basically says, we're going to let you keep doing business, but you're going to do it under our rules. And our rules are that you don't get to set the price of your intellectual property of your copyright, but rather we're going to give it to a federal judge that sits in New York to tell you what your price is, and you can't say no. So when you're talking to a modern songwriter today, that songwriter is basically making money in three different ways. They're making money from that mechanical reproduction, mostly today interactive streaming. They're making money from public performance, which are things like still radio, general licensing to public venues, television. And they're making money from synchronizations of where their music is being married to some type of video. They put the song in a movie or a TV show or a music video or even YouTube. And a typical songwriter today, 75% of their revenue is regulated in one of those first two ways, the mechanical regulated by a World War I era law or the public performance regulated by a World War II era consent decree. And three-fourths of the revenue from a songwriter, the price is set by the federal government. And if you're a songwriter today and you're looking at why aren't you making more money from your songs, the answers tend to go back to those two reasons. What happened in 1909, what happened in 1941, and the fact that those two things still govern the songs that are produced today, which is one of the most incredible things that you've ever heard. I spoke to some Congress people, and when I talked to them about what we're talking about, I essentially said, you know, if you're a dairy farmer and you sold me a gallon of milk for 9.1 cents in 1972, that I in perpetuity can take your milk for 9.1 cents and you have no choice about it. And the problem with streaming is that because we don't know what it is, I can take your entire farm and I can give you a percentage of the 9.1 cents because I can argue that that milk is now is distributed differently. But I get to decide how much I pay you for your milk. I know that I'm probably screwing up this analogy in a few ways. No, it's a great analogy. But I was trying to explain in some sort of agricultural street well, dirt road sort of way, how little we're getting paid and how ridiculous that is. What was surprising 
were how surprised they were. Right. That they're still being educated and either they either Congress hasn't they aren't retaining the information or they're not being presented with the information. I'm not sure what it is. Why is it so hard to get people Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. People to recognize how ridiculous this is. We're dealing with a 109 year problem or eight year problem and we're dealing with another problem on the other side that's approaching whatever that is, you know, 70 years. So why can't we get some sort of reform? It's a great question and it's it basically sums up what I consider to be my mission in life now is to figure out a way out of these restrictions. And I think we have two major problems. The first problem is what you pointed to, which is the lack of understanding by the people who make the decisions that govern us. And so in a United States Congress, you have committees, and there are committees in both the Senate and the House that are known as the Judiciary Committees, and they focus on issues involving copyright. If you talk to members of Congress in those committees, they generally have an understanding of what our issues are. They hold hearings, they have staffers who focus on these issues, and they generally are up to speed. But that represents a small fraction of the total Congress. And if you are a congressperson that's not on one of these two committees, you probably have very little reason to understand this. And what further complicates that problem is that members of Congress tend to focus on the problems of their own district. That's right, their own constituents. And so if you are a congressperson, what is important in your district? And for the music industry, we are a very concentrated industry in a couple of cities. And so if you go to talk to the members of Congress from Los Angeles or New York or Nashville, you will probably find members who are educated on our issues. If you talk to members of Congress from pretty much anywhere else in the country. They probably don't have a lot of songwriters in their district, and they're not hearing about these issues when they go to town halls, when they run for re-election, when they do candidate debates, things of that nature. And so it's an enormous challenge to try to educate members of Congress about these problems who aren't coming from a city that matters to the music industry or that sit on the right committee. And that's why... What you do and other songwriters do by donating your time to come to Washington and meet with members of Congress is probably the most valuable thing that we can ever do to advance our cause. Because having an actual songwriter explain this is so much more effective 
than even someone like myself who's uh, running a trade association to represent those songwriters because hearing it from the people who make the music is powerful. The second problem we have is that once you've educated people about what this problem is and their initial reaction is often, I didn't know that, that's surprising to me, that doesn't sound fair. Then you get into the politics. And the politics are that everyone who pays a songwriter doesn't want these rules to change. These rules benefit the people that pay songwriters. They get to pay songwriters less because of them. And there is what I call the unholy trinity of the industries that oppose change. One is made up of the giant technology companies. If you look at the technology companies today, four of the five biggest companies in the world use music significantly. Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Those companies enjoy the consent decrees and the compulsory licenses that keep our prices low. And they have enormous political power, obviously, four of the five biggest companies in the world. The second group in that unholy trinity are the broadcasters, people that do broadcast radio, broadcast television. Every member of Congress has a broadcaster in their district. They are very effective in how they lobby. They are local, and members of Congress tend to listen to the broadcasters. They don't want the rules to change. The third group is made up of people that operate basically businesses that use music in a public space. So think about restaurants, bars, hotels. Again, every member of Congress has local business establishments that use music that do not want these rules to change. And so even if you can get beyond the hurdle of educating Congress about what our challenges are, and even if their initial reaction is that doesn't sound fair, when you get to the politics of changing it, we are facing an enormous power on the other side that is much more attuned to the local politics of the members that make these decisions. And then you combine that problem with the fact that the music industry is splintered often. They don't even speak with one voice. And so it's already, to your earlier introduction, a David versus Goliath fight. The problem with that we have is that the David in this situation is made up of lots of different little organizations that fight with each other. And so you end up not getting a message through where everyone agrees on what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. So that helps explain why we've been stuck with the rules that were given to us back in 1909 and 1941. But as depressing as that all sounds, that doesn't mean it has to stay that way forever. And I am optimistic that we're going to be able to change it. How? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, first of all, I think that the interactive streaming models and the digital models that are now dominant in the music industry are putting a spotlight on the problem. It used to be that even though we had these same rules in place throughout history, we didn't really complain about them. If you think about the music industry, go because back... Because it was growing exponentially, so we... right. The music industry was growing. <clears throat> People were buying albums, which was the mechanical, or they were listening to the radio, which was performance, and money was good. Uh, we grew every year. Um, people generally thought they were getting a fair return when they were getting the 9.1 cents on every song of an album that was purchased by a consumer. And radio advertising generated a lot of money. And so for a long time, even though we lived under a compulsory license and a consent decree, we never complained about it. 
And I think that the complaining, and I say complaining, that's probably not even a good word, um, raising the issue of how unfair the rules are, started to really happen with the digital age. It started with Pandora. It started with YouTube. It started when people who were very successful at what they do, that were starting to realize that you can be successful and still not make a living. And that's when people started to pay attention. And so I am optimistic because of that. I'm also optimistic because I think that writers are becoming more educated. And as they do, there are a lot of decisions that can be made that can basically get around the political power of the people on the other side. In this next section, David talks about the difference between rights of labels and rights of songwriters and how streaming affects both. These laws and regulations that I've described only apply to songwriters and music publishers. They do not apply to artists and record labels. When record labels came into existence in this country, the same rules were never put on them that we had been living with since 1909. And so if you fast forward to today, why is a record label making so much more money than a songwriter and music publisher for what the activity is? And I believe the answer lies in the laws that regulate us. And I'll give you the perfect example. I'll give you two examples. In every other country in the world, a record label's rights in radio are known as neighboring rights. People may have heard that term before. What it means is that if you're a radio station in another country and you have to pay the songwriters and you have to pay the artists, in every other country, the songwriter makes as much or more than the artist does for radio. The artist right is a neighboring right. In this country, even though we have the very unfair rule that artists don't get paid anything from radio, and that should change, if you look at digital radio, Pandora Radio, XM Sirius Radio, iHeart Radio, the record labels were getting 10 to 13 times what the songwriters were getting. And only after a very nasty long war have we improved that to be about five to one. And yet, why isn't it 50-50? And I think the answer is in the rules that regulate us versus the rules that either don't regulate artists and record labels at all or do so differently. So the is other- it retaliation for the years of how radio like balanced out towards songwriters? Is this a label... You know, conspiracy. I've heard people get angry at the labels for how much money they're taking out of the models. And what I would say is, I don't blame them at all. They are in a free market and they run businesses for profit. And their job is to try to get as much money for their intellectual property as they can. They've been very successful at it. My problem is with the law that regulates us because I believe that if we were playing under the same rules as record labels, then the market would put a value on the two different contributions made by the writer and by the artist, and you would see it balance out. And the place where you do see that happen is in the synchronization field. And so whenever you put music in a movie or a TV show or a commercial, that is the one area of the music industry where both record labels and artists and songwriters and music publishers are free No government law that regulates it. No consent decree at the Justice Department that regulates it. And what happens in that environment? 50-50. 50-50. What's what's advice you'd give to a young songwriter? 
I get asked that a lot. Um, advice I would give to a young songwriter. I would say to a young songwriter, first of all, don't be discouraged by what you hear are the troubles of the music industry because if you want to be a songwriter, then go be a songwriter. That's the first thing I would tell them. Secondly, I would tell them that more than ever, they need to be educated about the business side of what they're doing. Um, it's more important now to understand the business issues than it was before. And so you can't just be a creator anymore. You have to, in effect, be a small business yourself. And that means paying attention to all these other things. Third, I would say choose carefully who you do business with, your publisher, your PRO, the artists that you work with, the producers you work with, and get involved in what they're doing as well. Um, those would be the things that I would you know, probably say to a, to a young songwriter from my point of view. I can't give them a lot of creative advice, but that's what I would say in terms of them as being successful in their business. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 